Hello and welcome to the TechMap podcast with me, Andy Bargery. In today's show, we are talking about how do you understand the human condition? How do you get the insights that help you to create impactful marketing communications? And my guest on the show is the very well-known and rather splendid Anthony Taz Tazgill. As usual, if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy the show. Taz, good morning. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Andy. How are you today? Uh, I'm very good. I'm very good. Very lively. Um, a lot of stuff going on outside my house, so I'm hoping that that won't interfere. But apart from that, everything is fine. <laughs> Do you know, uh, I have a similar challenge here. I think you've got some building works going yeah. on, but I have two rather amorous wood pigeons that like to get friendly on my rooftop. So if we hear the cooing of pigeons today, you know that's what's going it's on. more elegant than what I've got, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, hopefully no walls being knocked down and, uh, and so on and so forth over here. But Taz, thanks for joining the 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 show Uh, i was trying to rack my brains for when we first met and i think it was when we invited you to speak at a conference we organized on ad research probably about i don't know six seven years ago yes um for for walk wasn't it but uh, and that's a kind of a good framer for what i would love to talk to you about today because uh, i know you as a guy that knows a lot about insights and it's only when we when I kind of scratched the surface that I found out you're a guy that knows a lot more than just about <laughs> insights. You, you kind of, you've been around the, the advertising and the marketing and the media world for quite a long time, yep. but it really is insights I'd love to focus on today. And I think, um, I don't know where I heard this. I think pretty sure it was you actually, Taz, you talked about marketing has chosen the wrong science and it's not physics and maths. It's more about biology and psychology for understanding human behavior that creates the the basis for great insights and great yes, campaigns. Yes. Um, but before we get into the the kind of the details, the the nuts and bolts of insights, it would be great if you could just briefly introduce yourself for our listeners that who who haven't come across you before. Okay, um, I started uh, in the advertising industry in the early eighties. Um, I made the obvious leap from studying Latin, Greek, and ancient history to working in an ad agency. <laughs> Um, there is a story behind that, but maybe maybe later. Um, <laughs> uh, and I just always had always enjoyed sort of media and cinema, uh, and I'm still a trustee of a cinema in, in North London. And I thought well, advertising that sounds quite fun. And there was this thing called planning, which sounded quite sort of strategic, moderately intellectual. wasn't just about you know pouring Perrier or you know growing stubble and yeah. having a, a white piece of paper in front of you. Um, and just got increasingly fascinated with the idea almost of sort of applying psychology uh, as a planner to how you actually influence people, whether it's to buy Alpen cereal, whether it's to buy a particular product or vote in a particular way or change your behaviour. I did that for about 16, 17 years and really enjoyed it, but just sort of got to a stage where I just got bored with the fact that the answer to every question was a 40-second TV commercial. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And also, I, I sort of just wanted to do some other things because I'd always liked lecturing. So I wanted a lecture, and I was beginning to do some writing, and I quite like training. So, um, about yeah, twenty years ago, I decided to sort of take the leap, go freelance. Did that for a bit, and still freelance a little bit for ad agencies and clients. But now, mainly do training for people like the MRS, the Market Research Society, the CIA, yep. Institute of Marketing, Institute of Internal Communications, and the Civil Service College. 
um, and still do some lecturing at a couple of universities here and abroad. I've uh, done a couple of books. And yeah, as you say, I, I quite like the fact that it allows me to sort of work across different domains and different areas and disciplines, because as we'll talk about later, that for me is actually one of the ways you generate insight in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having, I'd be honest with you, Taz, I haven't been able to read the whole of the Inspiratorium, but what I have read is one of the things I'm taking away from that is that the the source of inspite, uh, insight, sorry, and inspiration isn't necessarily a structured, rigorous process. It's just having your eyes open to new ideas and new experiences and new uh, cultures, shall we say. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you've taken that out, I'm very happy. Okay, good. So, shall, I, yeah. <laughs> shall I not read the rest of it? No, 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 there's plenty more. There's plenty more. <laughs> Funny enough, I mean, one of the things that I deliberately tried to do, and I've got a very nice publisher lead who allowed me to do it, was the first part of the book is actually a sort of analysis of what insight is, and we can talk about that shortly. But then the rest of it is, in a sense, a demonstration of what that is. So there's lots of different anecdotes and stories and bits uh, and pieces from the world of uh, psychology, from science, from film, from language, from history, as a way of saying to your brain, as you read the book, hopefully it's creating those sort of new connections. So I wanted to do a, a different type of book. This isn't just sort of one, you know, thesis that you just read and you have 200 pages. So there's a deliberate attempt to have different rooms with different ideas in each room. Uh, and hopefully as the reader reads it they go oh that's interesting and un- unconsciously there are new connections being made so hopefully if you get further that's what you'll find oh i'm definitely going to get further it's it's engaging in the fact that it it kind of uh, it opens your eyes to different ideas on on every page you turn so it's yeah, so far i've been enjoying it but let's um let's let's then look at defining what insight is and what insight isn't because i guess as a term, insight's been used to death over the last, I don't know, five, ten years, hasn't it? But yes. what actually is it? What are people talking about when they talk about insight? Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things I've, I found quite amusing was when I, I as I said, I worked in the ad industry um, and suddenly people started using the word insight. And I always ask now when I do training, I say, what do we used to say before insight? Because I'm, I'm old enough to know that there was a time where insight was something that was generally restricted to the world of, of art or science. And then suddenly the market, marketing world, and particularly market research, in inverted commas, I'm doing the inverted commas thing here, by the way. Okay, I got you. Discovered insight as if it was their own. <laughs> um, which I think, you know, people like, I don't know, Leonardo da Vinci is a bit of, you know, a bit of a downer, really, because uh, people like him and Aristotle and, you know, Archimedes got their several hundred or thousand years ago before the market, market research industry. So for me... I always found it interesting because we used to talk about like recommendations or conclusions and then suddenly, you know, they got upgraded to insights. Um, and I often say, you know, what's the, what's the difference between a research manager and an insight manager? And the answer is about £30,000. Um, <laughs> okay. And I, that's the thing that gets me a little bit. And obviously I, I work in the market research world and I train for the MRS. So I have to be slightly careful that I don't bite off the hand that feeds me. But I, I think there's a, a worrying a worrying association within the research world that, that research equals insight, that you simply generate the right type of research or enough of it, and very often it is literally quantity, and then suddenly, majestically, magically, insight will emerge you know, like Venus. And I, and that's the thing that worries me because that, that isn't how insight Got actually you. Okay, so there's a clear difference between research that produces data and insight, which is what you take yes. out of that data. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a quote that I, I, I've I've used a lot, which is I say that inf- uh, information is to be connect uh, to be collected, insight is to be connected. So information is not the same as, as insight. You know, data is just stuff; it's fuel. And often I talk about content and data. I don't know about you, but I often hear a lot of people talk about you know content and content management and content strategy. Oh, all the time <laughs> drives me mad. And I, I always say to people in again in training and stuff. Just try replacing the word content with stuff. <laughs> because that's all it is. It well, is co- just... content is another one of those buzzwords that kind of yeah. exploded in the last 10 years as well. And, and suddenly yeah, everyone I mean, becomes a content marketer or a content exactly. agent. And I do my storytelling training day. I, I, I have a section where I just called um, Junk the Jargon. And w- one of the words that I try and, you know, inveigle into it is the word, ju- is the word uh, content. Because it's it, again, it's just stuff with you know with a better PR agency, <laughs> and, and it is stuff. And there's good stuff, and there's bad stuff. And there's interesting stuff and irrelevant stuff. But calling it content doesn't make it better. And I think the analogy again with insight is there are too many people who work in marketing and research who, who, as I say, just think that if you just collect enough information, um, insight, as I say, will emerge. But the point about that that in, information is to be collected insight is to be connected insight is really about allowing your your unconscious your system one if you like in um, behavioral economics Kahneman terms to play around with making new connections and insight does have that emotional feel i talk an awful lot about behavioral economics and train on it and lecture on it and one of the big six emotions that's generally considered to be universal is surprise and insight has to generate has to generate that sense of surprise uh, there's a quote from Isaac Asimov, um, a famous science fiction uh, writer and scientist. And he says the most the most common thing that scientists say is not "Eureka, I found it." It's that's funny. And I, I think again, I, I like to talk in the book about analogies for insight because I think it's more interesting. Mm. To look at. So one of the analogies is that that's funny. That that sense of oh, that's odd. That's unusual. That's interesting. So that's when you feel. I think. You feel insight rather than actually you can you know prod it and, and, and fulfill. <laughs> I think that I think that's right in in any kind of uh, investigation. I suppose whether you're a scientist or not, if something's slightly odd, that's where you've found something to work on, something yes. to play with, isn't it? Yeah, and and again, I think there's a tendency, and I don't want to get into the old sort of you know quantitative qualitative research because it's 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 more subtle than that, more nuanced than that. But I often find that on that spectrum you know, with big data or quantitative research, there is this sort of tendency to think, well, that there must be something interesting in there. Um, but equally with quant and qual, it, it's it's the person doing it, actually, who, who has the insight, who searches the insight. We can talk about algorithms and AI and big data later. But for me, I think part of the problem in our industry is we need people who are more prone to or almost like at risk of finding insights because the data, as I say, the data in itself won't yield. You know, statistics you. won't yield. It's it's really having that ability and that that curiosity really is another word that you know that I think we don't think enough about to, to actually allow your brain to find these patterns. So who who then it, who is the right person that is prone to find those those insights? Then what kind of skill sets does that person need to have? That's a really that's a really big question, and I, I think I talk about it in various places. And uh, I might tell the story about my son actually, who's probably still in his room sleeping. Um, 
Because I think that, that, as I say, the, the, the tendency is to sort of look for people who are, you know, researchers who are looking at numbers and data or, or human behaviour. And I think one of the things that some of the places that I've worked at or worked for over the last two years are doing, they're, they're beginning to recruit from a, a wider pool. Oh, interesting. So okay, so anthropologists, ethnographers, you know, people who who come from a, a sort of broader academic background. And I think one of the things that we just sort of touched on a second ago is, for me, it really is all about curiosity. I think what you do need to find, and again, I, I, I'm not setting myself up as some sort of, you know, paragon, but, you know, I'm interested in, in etymology and in classics, in film, in psychology, in comedy. And I think the sort of people who we want to be doing this sort of insight excavation at the coalface are people who are more broadly equipped in that sort of cultural, you know, artistic, cultural sense, of, as well as just being, as I say, people who look for, for patterns in data. Mm, okay. So uh, I know when I was in, in, in university studying kind of uh, insights, uh, a lot of it kind of related to statistics. And, you know, I remember spending yeah. time looking at SPSS and that almost, wow. that almost killed me. Uh, well, my daughter, as I, um, I can't said offline, today is the day my daughter gets her psychology university result uh, after doing three years of psychology. And I, I don't. I lecture at Nottingham, Trent, and Bucks and stuff. But with my academic le- lecturing hat on, I, I'm, I'm particularly looking at things like psychology. We haven't really talked about that science thing yet. But I'm, I'm very worried about how much psychology now seems to be basically statistics. Um, and the amount of, of stuff that she's had to do, and I don't, obviously don't just mean her, but psychology uh, degree, yes. seems to be inordinately a absolutely swimming, drowning in jargon. They have to write in a particular way. But it seems to be so much is about, you know, statistical analysis. And I know that um, one has to sort of do all these analyses as Kahneman and Tversky did in the 70s and the 80s when they were developing prospect theory, which is sort of effectively the heart of behavioural economics. But but I, I do I do worry that some of the softer, more human stuff is is getting squeezed out. I think that's probably every likelihood that it is <laughs> because I think some of those more human side of things are less easy to teach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think psychology, and this is where, you know, we can, we can start talking about the science thing is I, I think again, because some of the social sciences have, have been felt slightly in awe. And um, there's a term that I like using. Um, I, I, I can't remember who said it originally physics envy um, with apologies to Freud. obviously. Physics envy. Um, okay. <laughs> Yeah, and um, I've seen it, I think, used in, in the way that the social sciences want to be more like the hard sciences, hence the obsession with sort of numbers and quantification. But I've used, I've used physics envy a lot to describe what's happening in our business, in happening marketing and advertising and, and, and so on. The fact that we want to make it as much like physics and maths as possible. There's no question there's been a real change in the landscape with the advance in, you know, the, the growth of big data, the advance in MarTech has certainly changed the way in which I think yeah. marketers behave. So, you know, you know, now if you're running an advertising campaign, you're looking for a, I don't know, a 0.1% improvement in a performance of a Facebook ads campaign, and that's your job as an advertising person. So well, hang on a minute. Where is the, where's the creativity in that? You know, it's, I mean, I, I can start on my rant. Go on, rant, rant away. It's healthy. You've opened the door, <laughs> and, and I always have to preface preface it by saying, I I'm not the enemy of data. I'm not the enemy of big data. <clears throat> excuse me, or AI or algorithms. You know, I know the role that they play, and I'm aware that there's a, I'm being a bit sort of canute-ish about this. But I would like just to roll back a little bit of how far we've gone in terms of that balance between 
you know, the soft and the hard between art and science, and certainly between this distinction between, on the one hand, physics, maths, engineering, and accountancy, and on the other hand, biology, psychology, and culture. Good, okay. So we're going to harmonise art and science here then? Um, If we can do that in, you know, 20 (laughs) minutes, I think that's not a bad uh, use of everyone's time. Um, But yeah, it may take a little bit longer. Um, But no, it's, it's worried me since... I started in the ad industry where, you know, it was unapologetically in the 80s, you know, a bit more fun. And clearly, once in particular the ad, um, the IPA, the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising, wanted to demonstrate the value of advertising to clients, which was always their issue, particularly mm. CFOs. It's advertising, as Lever Hume said, you know, <clears throat> I know that half of my advertising isn't working, but I don't know which half. Um, there was always this sort of this sort of chase for the holy grail search for the holy grail of proof and accountability which in itself was was absolutely you know well founded and it led to the ipa advertising effectiveness awards it led to the sort of the deification of econometrics but any of us who did advertising effectiveness papers at the time and and i did a couple realized that as with all these things to some extent it was the story that came first and the data that you know was massaged to fit the story well isn't that how most uh, statistics has worked <laughs> are used yeah. it is i mean absolutely yeah i mean that's another thing that i rant about which is this idea that you know that, that somehow statistics and data are purer and truer <laughs> and you know there are, there are still you laugh but there are still people who you know who tell me that, whether it's a quant qual thing or just a general... <laughs> well, um, what's the old expression? Is it? I know what the answer is. Now use market research to tell me um, yeah. how to get there. Yeah. yeah. And you can, you know, you can... I think there's literally a subsection in the Oxford Dictionary book of, of, quote, of quotations about, you know, lies down lies and statistics. <laughs> um, and there's one that I use that says, you know, if you interrogate the data hard enough, it will tell you anything. Um, and I, I do think that's true. And I, I yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think what's happened is is this desire to sort of revere physics and maths. <clears throat> excuse me. As the firstly, the ultimate sciences to follow, and secondly, the way of proving to you know data hungry, metric hungry, KPI hungry um, boards and CFOs led the marketing world and the advertising world. To, to go so far down this path of trying to quantify everything and reduce everything to a metric that I think maybe we've lost some of the other side of that balance. And mm. I think working as I, as I have all the time with creative people and, you know, working as a planner is, is a part, it's, it's, it's part of a creative function as much as, as a strategic one. I, I do worry that, again, I think that balance has now sort of swung a bit too far. And... What I call this is the lure of the single criterion um, has also taken over. When I started, we had something called day after recall. So, you know, creative people would write ads that, that you know, they knew people yep. remember the day before. Um, and then Gordon Brown set up Millwood Brown. It was all the awareness index. Um, and I remember a client I had, and I won't name her because she's still around. Um, and we'd done a campaign for um, a serial. And we'd gone up to Leamington Spa for the debrief. And the AI for younger listeners, um, is a sort of black box number that says the amount of uh, sort of extra t- uh, 100 TVRs that you have for your ad, roughly the number of uh, extra uh, points of spontaneous ad or brand awareness you'll get. And we were told that the norm in this category was full. So we went to the debrief. We were waiting very eagerly and very expectantly. My client mm, okay. was standing in front of her boss. 
And the moment came, they said, right, so your ad over this campaign got a six. And literally, she jumped up, left the room, ran down the corridor screaming, we got a six, we got a six. And I think at that time, I decided maybe the ad industry wasn't for me anymore. <laughs> yes. You can't reduce, you know, you can't reduce everything to sort of one number and one criterion. And I think, again... I'm not tiring everyone with the same brush, but I think some of that is still lingering in this attempt to explain everything with one well, do, one number. Do you think that comes down to the balance between performance-based marketing and brand-based marketing? In other words, I need to see an uplift in my sales versus yeah. I need to see an impact on my brand recall. Absolutely. Uh, again, I mean, one of the, you know, the, the, the spectra, spectrums whatever or um uh, or uh, balances i used to see a lot of you know brand versus retail so when we work with um you know retail brands um we were always looking not only at you know how many how much footfall there was or how many you know units we'd sold but you know what it had done for the brand and you're right i think what's happened is that that desire to make everything you know as easy to quantify as you know how many people came in the store or how many people mm, bought the product absolutely has led to trying to look at brands and and also human behaviour in that same sort of slightly reductionist manner. And again, I'm not saying it's it's all pointless or it's all useless, but as I say, I just worry how far we've we've gone down that path. And I think we're almost entirely down that path. You know, I think that, and you see that on the impact and the quality of the creativity you see in the advertising campaigns these days. But from my world, because I'm not from an advertising agency background, I'm much more from a Marcoms um, uh, agency landscape. And and that has always been very metric numbers driven. What's the impact on uh, visits to the website and how much has that converted, for example? How many event attendees and what did that generate in terms of value of sales lead pipeline so for me that feels much more natural rather than the the advertising world where brand building is more important than actual performance yeah i I absolutely go along that one of the other things that um that sort of bedevils me really is is the sense that these measurements are, are sometimes very very arid um and again one of the things that um i try and bring to the behavioral economics part of what I do um, when I'm working with um, clients or training or whatever is we know not just from behavioral economics, but validated by is, is the power of the emotion, the power of the implicit, the power of what people do rather than what they say. And again, I think sometimes the market research world and the whole world of measurement per se is still rather enthralled to that very sort of slightly, you know, dry, banal, you know, did you go to this site? Did you click on this? And there's there's some very interesting work being done um, by some research companies and elsewhere about trying to get much softer, much more emotional, much more um, implicit um, gauges of people's sort of um, behaviour and attitudes. Mm. And I, I'd, I'd love I'd love there to be more work done in that. And in that part of the forest, as I say, there are some really interesting people doing really interesting stuff. But I, I don't know, it still feels rather niche and rather fringe to me. I don't think it's mainstream enough. I still think, you know, sort of slightly um, bombastically, about 80% of market research is worthless because it's based on it, but the very, very rational system too. Yes, it's yes. It's very, very sort of explicit. It's asking people to make judgments or 
describe their behaviour, which most of the time we can't. So that's I know it's opening up a none of another can of worms. That's- it certainly is, but that's okay. And and I think it's okay to question the value of of research if you're not seeing um, the value in terms of it informing your creative strategy or whatever you're using that research for. And I think I guess what I'm hearing is that it, it's kind of what you were saying there is that if you're asking someone to def- describe or define their thoughts, feelings, or, or their process or whatever it is, that you're probably going to get a different response to what happened in reality. So yes. that kind of instinctive, what actually happened is different to how they report it to you. So that's going to skew yes. the quality of the research anyway. Yeah, there's a massive, I mean, this is a topic in itself, which is <clears throat> really two things. One is um, there's that great uh, book called Everybody Lies. Um, by Seth Davidovitz, some Myers, I think his name is. Um, and he's basically a Google guy, and he looks at actually the difference between what people said they did compared to their Google searches. <laughs> and I would warn everyone, A, I'd say two things to anyone listening. One is please buy the book, and two, it comes with a parental guidance warning because some of the stuff that people do look at online in terms of re- revealing their own behaviour is clearly, you know, not something to be discussed in front of grandma when you're watching. Yeah, Absolutely. Family. Um, well, there's a difference between your public and your private life, isn't there? The stuff you're prepared to share and stuff you're yeah. not prepared to share. But of course, that, say, the whole system one, system two thing, which yeah. I'm fascinated by, is the fact that most of the time we don't know actually why we do. There's a great, um, great quote from a man called David Eagleman, who's a, a, a neuroscientist from Texas um, right. and did a series on BBC and PBS. Um, and he's fantastically bright and annoyingly handsome. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's just not fair to have the that's two together, fair, is it? No, I was just yeah. thinking that's just unfair. Um, and he has this great line in one of his books: um, "We don't think the way we think we think," which I love it because it's just a beautiful, elegant expression. And it's sort of you know the whole behavioral economics enterprise in a sentence, which is you know we we like to think we you know we're very rational and considered and sequential, but most of the time we're not. Most decisions we make are, have already been sort of pre-made, and we're just running on the same tracks. So all of these things, and I know we've got slightly off that topic, but all these things for me are, are things that, whether it's insight, whether it's data, whether it's Marcoms, whether it's looking at hits and likes, I think the old model that we've been running on really needs a bit of a shake-up. Because if you look mm. at it in the way that I'm talking with insight and behavioural economics, it, it just doesn't fit that model anymore. So that that's, in a sense, what I'm, I suppose I'm trying to sort of get out there. It's time for change. There was something you said a bit earlier, Taz, where you said that, that, that I think it was around different perspectives or di- a diverse set of uh, research methodologies will give you a better result or more more insight. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess that kind of plays off a, gr- a great conversation I had recently about the diversity, not in terms of the, the, the research methodologies, but in terms of the people you have within your business, your agency, your marketing team. Yeah. And their diversity mm-hmm. enables you to have a much broader, fresher perspective, a different way of thinking about marketing challenges. So I'm just wondering whether you've got any thoughts on that. You know, is, yeah, it, it, yeah. Is, I think, I think Isn't that something worth thinking about? Definitely. I, I think that's sort of what I touched on before, is this sense that we need to have much more diversity in, in approach. And I don't just mean the usual, um, you know, sort of gender race things, but actually just sort of like, I don't know, intellectual, cultural curiosity, diversity. Um, and there's that quote again from um, Isaiah Berlin, um, which I think is at the beginning of the second book, The Inspiratorium. A fox knows many things, but hedgehogs just one. <laughs> I mean, I, yes, I said the book is you know the book is a book for foxes because again I think there's a tendency for look for looking at <clears throat> what in science is called the a GUT grand universal theory 
or a toe, a theory of everything. Um, and I'm much more interested in not one big theory, but lots of little ways and different ways. So as I said in, in the second book and, and elsewhere, I think it's just important that we try and keep our sort of cultural antennae open. So, you know, I happened to go and see the Edvard Munch um, exhibition at the British Museum the other day, um, and it was fantastic, very depressing and bleak, um, but I'd recommend it to to everyone. Um, because I think that's how your brain is more likely, um, particularly if you're working with, with other people of different interest. If you're working on, I don't know, if you have to work on a particular brand all the time. So if you work... At Specsavers, you only talk about vision. If you work on Muller, you're thinking about yogurt. And there's a tendency, again, I think, in, in the marketing world, in the brand world, to sort of see people solely as consumers of your product. So, you know, you, you go in on a Monday and you just all you do is you think about people who own a car, used to own a car, or will own a car. And, and that's not how, you know, human behavior mm. works. You know, by and large, most people have lives where the centre of, of their attention is their family, their friends, their football, their faith, other things that don't begin with an F, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's interesting. Cars are, are relatively, you know, on the fourth or fifth circle, or, you know, away from the bullseye. But <laughs> operate as if, you know, consumers solely wake up in the morning pondering which, you know, which brand of yoghurt to consume. Well, you know, I, I would um, debate whether cars and yogurt have the same loyalty as uh, each other, but yeah. I'm totally with you on that. In fact, you know, if, if your whole mindset is about one product area, you, you're definitely missing out on uh, the thinking from different products, different categories, different audiences you're working with. And I think having that blend of experience is quite quite an asset to a marketeer. And also, I think when I was a planner, and I think planners do that in ad agencies, and I think some clients sort of brand managers or portfolio managers or brand range managers can normally i mean i'm at the last agency or one of the last agencies i worked at you know, i was working on cadbury i was working on peugeot i was working on evian i was working on a charity now what was fascinating for my brain which i didn't know at the time really was you know your brain is making connections between all those very very different sectors mm. so you don't just think as i say all the time about you know why people won't buy you know a mid-range car um, and you find analogies and comparisons and metaphors, which suddenly you, from one meeting or one client, you think, oh, actually, that's quite interesting because it might be quite insightful if applied in another. And again, that's one of the things about this diversity that I talk about. Cause Got you. There's a term called incubation, which is used in the sort of insight literature. So the first stage of any analysis that scientists or creative people do is called immersion. So you throw yourself into it. And then at the end of the day, you get, hopefully you get your illumination, which is your aha. Um, but a man called um, Wallace in 1926, I think it was, said that there's, an, there's a missing, there's an off, well, often missing um, stage that we don't think about, which he called incubation, which he says that you'll never go just from immersion to illumination. You'll never just mm. bury yourself in understanding something and then come up with something new. He said, you have to allow your brain to incubate. In other words, let it mull things over, go and read a book, go for a walk. You know, we all know what it's like. It's called the bed, bath, bus um, analogy in, in Insight. You know, when you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and the thing that you've been trying to find out suddenly emerges or you get on the bar, like have a bath and you come out or you sit, step on the bus. And there's loads of examples of famous scientists doing that, saying literally, um, Henri, uh, Henri Poincaré was a, a, a scientist and he said, you know, literally one day I stepped on the bus and as I stepped on the bus, the equation that I was trying to solve came to me. 
the light bulb moment. And we all know, we all know what that's like because we all do it, and that's called incubation. So you have to allow incubation whether it's in your own brain or by you know chatting to other people who aren't thinking about the same things so that that kind of i guess slightly off topic here but good to get your take on it is there's a there is a trend right now for brands to in-house their marketing function to take work away from agencies and to to deliver it themselves with an internal team Mm. based on what you've just said there for me that feels like quite a narrow view because if you are, let's say you're BMW and you bring your marketing team in-house and all they ever work on is BMW, in that incubation period between immersion and illumination, you're just in that one kind of echo chamber. You haven't got all the influences from all the other worlds that an agency might be working in. So do you think that that might have A, an impact on the, the length of the incubation period and B, the quality of the illumination? I think it can. Yeah, I think you can. Because as, as you say, we're living in a world where, you know, bubbles are becoming, you know, more prevalent and, and arguably more pernicious generally. And I think we all need to, you know, break ourselves out of our bubble, whether it's, you know, yeah. cultural or whatever. Um, interestingly, there's one client I know, and if you're listening, Graham, this is for you. And they're based, <laughs> they're based in, in the Guernsey. And, and they have an in-house, not only they're, they're the marketing department, they have an in-house creative department. Um and they work in vision. Yeah. Um, and they're very big and they've been very, very successful. And they do it partly because, A, you know, he, he's very imaginative and very insightful and always looking for sort of new ideas. Um, but I think they realise that is a potential problem because I think you are right. I think that the, the tendency is, and I, I work with lots of clients, and I did a talk last week at something called the Market Insight Forum in London, and there were a couple of clients there who I chatted to and I, I found the same thing, which is, it, it's terribly it becomes terribly introverting if that's a word yes um it's a word <laughs> well it's now um and as i said before there, there is that ter- terrible tendency to see human beings solely um in the light of of that product so for me it's not enough just to do as clients will won't or won't do have an you know a blue sky thinking day every so often you know on a way that you need to to actually build it into the system so that they are constantly doing things which um just shake up um the way they think so for example like there are a couple of clients um over the years i've worked with a couple of my tame clients um and i run what i call a book club well it's just a book club so um so every so often usually every four to six weeks i set them a book the only rule is they're no they're not business books they're just books yeah. about people or ideas or culture or whatever and <clears throat> either early morning or lunch or after work we spend a couple of hours talking about what they found about the book and then gradually we sort of bring it back to what it might, uh, how it might relate to their market or their brand. But the, the idea is it's outside in thinking. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love the fact that you've been able to sell the idea of a, running a book club for a client, which is absolutely marvellous. They, they are my tamest clients. <laughs> um, I've tried it with many others and they all go, oh, that's a bit, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> How can I measure that? What are the metrics? How can I see well, exactly, that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and and what, uh, that's interesting. And, and ha- what's the impact of that program? How have you seen that change your clients have you seen they have produced uh, a sort of wider range of thinking and, and insights or, or, or have you seen any impact from that i guess is the um, yeah, I can't, i'm not going to give you a metric obviously no um, but one of the things that, that came back from a couple of them were, were just in terms of feedback and comments was 
it was just giving people permission. There's an expression I sometimes use, permission to speculate. And I, th- I think sometimes there are companies or departments within companies where they feel like they've been denied that permission. Mm. The, the, the sort of conventions and assumptions of that market or that brand, or sometimes even just the, you know, the, the CMO or whoever, are so rigid that people aren't allowed to sort of question the orthodoxy. So one of the things that I deliberately intended for that to do, and, and it seems to have, have happened in some cases, is just to give those people just the opportunity to bring in some new thinking, um, not just, as I say, once every three months when they all go to a nice hotel in Oxfordshire, but as part of their sort of, you know, in, endemic way of, of working, so that they're, they're more likely to come up with new ideas, whether it's new product development, whether it's looking at the website, and I think some of the comments I've got have been more about sort of validating that approach, really. Yes. Um, so that they're not rigidly confined to, again, so the jargon, you know, the sense that sometimes people will use jargon in their, in their markets without even working out, you know, why it means what it means. So, again, just asking them to sort of just look at that um, sceptically and say, well, do we need to talk about you know, leveraging strategy? And do we need to sort of talk about functionality? What does that actually mean? So it's really an attempt to, to, to come at it any way possible. And again, another client where, you know, once every three months, you know, I, I take a, a, a dozen of them out, and we go, go and see a film. So I did a few, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, we went to see that film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Okay, yeah. It's all about memory. So I ran a workshop in the cinema, my my old cinema, the Phoenix Cinema in East Finchley, um, about, the, about memory and how memory worked and whether memory was reliable and whether the research we were doing on memory um, was actually useful. So sometimes it, you need something which, which is, you know, outside of your, you know, convention assumption just to sort of shock you away from realising what you're doing without even thinking. And again, that that is, for me, one of the definitions uh, of insight. That makes perfect sense to me. You know, you need to get outside of your day-to-day. You need to get away from the environment that you're always operating in to get some fresh input, I suppose. And uh, that's not just the case for... Uh, market research and creating insight is the case for, I guess, human behaviour, isn't it? Sometimes you just need to get a, a new perspective on what you're doing. So, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a quote I was just looking at the other day because I'm writing something else, and I think it's in probably one of the books. Um, a guy called John Conway who did an awful lot of stuff with artificial intelligence and AI. Life. Um, and he says uh, people say maths is complicated. He says no, maths is not complicated. Cats are complicated. Um, <laughs> Um, and there's actually another another one as well, which I've just written about, which is um, there's there's a, a, a bit of language in the literature about complexity thinking, and it's the difference between complicated and complex. So a, a jumbo jet is complicated in the sense that it's got lots of bits, but if yes. you take the bits apart, you can put them. But they say a, a jumbo jet is complicated, but mayonnaise is complex because you can't take a bit out of mayonnaise and put it back. It's just it's the interaction of all the ingredients. And I've always found that a really interesting metaphor because often we think of human behaviour as complicated. You know, we can analyse it in bits, but it's not. It's the whole sum of it together. And it's not just how people think. It's the context in which they, they think. And that we haven't talked about that. It's another thing that gets me down about research. You can't ask people what they do unless you ask them in the right context. Give me an example. Um, I've, I've spent many years, as I say, working with, you know, confectionery brands, Cadbury's and the like and if you ask people abstractly you know face to face um 
or an online questionnaire, you know, which of these count lines, another bit of jargon, count lines, we used to call them count lines because it was the number of count in a box. And no human being ever says, well, which count lines shall I have? Is this <laughs> no. um, but the fact is you, you need to ask or at least understand the context, the situation, the mood, the environment that people are in. If you ask me now what chocolate bar I'll have when I'm in a cinema, I have no idea. Um, you have to understand that a lot of human behaviour is not cued by what goes inside their head. It's by cue, it's cued by what goes on around them. Yes. And funny enough, talking about movies, I went to see Toy Story 4 last night. Oh, it was uh, good. It was wonderful. It was much better than I hoped for, actually. It was it was lovely and funny and uplifting. And yes, it's, it feels it's a little bit, you know, it's run its path now, but it's it's still beautifully done. I, I know. I'm really concerned that I'm going to see the fourth because the first three have been incredible. And I just don't yeah. want the fourth to let me down. It's not, it, it won't let you down. It's not. It can never scale the heights, I don't think because the heights were so high. Yes. But it's still full of great gags and great moments, and it still gets the heartstrings. And you think, my God, I'm almost in tears about, you know, um, a, a CGI animated cowboy. You know, <laughs> I don't, don't take you back to the, the third Toy Story when they're on that conveyor belt, and you think, oh, oh, I don't know. Um, no, I'm sorry, that's, that's, a, right. that's getting there. the heartstrings. That was, that, was, that was literally like watching Edvard Munch <laughs> doing Toy Story. But getting back to my point about, um, oh, that's right, what is about films? How often do people eat popcorn? And where where do they eat popcorn? In cinema. Why do they eat popcorn in cinema? Because that's what people do. They eat popcorn in cinema. So if you ask people in the abstract what they think about popcorn, it, it's not going to be the same. You, you only have to ask them, or you should really ask them, in a context which is relevant. So again, I, I, I worry about an awful lot of market research because it's asking people to make abstract um, predictions or, or, or recollections which are out of the context. Yes. So again, it's just one of those things that we just have not really taken into account, but we should. Yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense as well. I think a lot of these um, research studies are out of context and and they come come out of the need for a a planner or an advertiser or a marketeer to try and um, justify their decision to, to do something. Um, So they kind of retrofit the research on the back there to explain a decision. But it also explains, I think, why a lot of um, product evaluation research goes wrong. Um, and even if you allow, even if you say the top, you know, are very likely to buy, quite likely to buy, and even if you weight them so that actually when people say, you know, I'm very likely to buy it, you weight it down, weight it by half, and then you downweight it. Even so, we always know those figures are wrong because generally we are very bad at predicting. Mm. Human beings are very poor at predicting their future. And certainly if you're talking about a new product, it's almost imagine, unimaginably impossible for most people to to describe how they are going to feel in some abstract situation in the future, mm. faced with a shelf or faced with a particular website, when they're so far you know away from it now. So again, I feel I'm being slightly you know damning of research on this. <laughs> Well, constructive. Well, listen, Taz. Let, let's because I'm looking at the clock, and we're getting towards about forty-five minutes. So, yeah, yeah. so w- why don't we um, let, let's finish off with something a bit more constructive and less damning? You know, what's yeah. if you've got a rallying call for the market research or the insights world? Um, you know, based on your thinking and your inspiratorium, what would that yes. be? I, to be honest, I think I've probably covered a lot of it. I think it's really about opening up your mind. It's it's really about seeking out new ideas, new domains, new uh, books, new films, which you're not necessarily looking for. 
and and just reading and thinking and, t- and absorbing things, knowing that your unconscious will find a place for it, right? So one of the things um, that I recommend people do is I, I, I sometimes people do this on their laptops anyway. So if you haven't got a folder, I don't know if you do, Andy. If you've got a, a folder that's just full of random, I'll say the word stuff, right? Where you just put anything in, you've no idea what it's going to be, but you just put it in there because at some point it will be useful, right? And I call it the idea orphanage. <laughs> okay, I haven't got or, an idea orphanage. That's that's for sure. Okay, or um, I think Stephen Jay Gould, the science writer, talked about applying previously unapplied detail. So sometimes I call it my PUD folder. Okay on the basis that I've no idea where I'll apply it, but one day I probably will. And I've, I don't know how many hundreds of things I've got in it, and there are pictures, and there are jokes, and there are memes, and there are words, and there's all sorts of stuff in there. And every so often, when I'm bored, or if I'm stuck, or I'm on a train, I'll look through that folder. And every time I do, I'll go, oh, oh, okay, I haven't thought about that. And and it's, it's almost like one of those things that, again, you sort of throw into you know, workshop or something to get people thinking. Got you. But I would, I would recommend both individually and also as a company. So again, a couple of companies that I work with, they have, you know, an inter- intranet where there's that sort of facility where people will all throw in stuff together. And when there is an opportunity or when people are bored or whatever, they'll just look at stuff. And it will absolutely help insight because it's not stuff that you're expecting. And whether, as I say, it's a bit of art or book or a word or a person that you've seen or just a strange name, um, you can never know when it will be of use, but I guarantee it will be. Taz, you know what? That really, I can totally understand you've got your your little orphanage there because, you know, what I've read so far of your excellent Inspiratorium is it's just such a wide collection of references and sources that it's clear to me that you definitely have that repository of fascinating stuff that's inspiring you i can see that in your writing yeah and and as i said i i I just sort of trying to say to people because one of the things that i got uh, i'm sorry i'm feeling this is a bit another depressing negative bit here now (laughs) um because i work with students and lecture at various universities and as i say i own several people of that age myself now um i was always very depressed about these really interesting exciting young people who study sociology or psychology or philosophy or history or whatever and then they're going to um a company and they'd have all the really interesting stuff bled out of them and it i just found it really disappointing because for me that's precisely why people are being recruited we want them to bring the stuff that they studied or the interests that they have to the to their mm-hmm. office, the office with them and as i say it doesn't have to be in every meeting in every document but the fact that they are interesting people with interesting backgrounds who've done interesting things or read interesting stuff, that's what I want from people. I want them to bring that precisely so that they won't become homogeneous, regimented people who follow what I call the arithmocracy, the obsession with you know with numbers. I want them to, to sort of come up and chirp up with ideas and, and things that no one else in that room would be thinking. Well, there's your and, rallying call, Taz, isn't it? There's your rallying call. Is please don't squeeze out the individuality, yes. the beauty of your diverse people. Allow them to be who they are and use their talents and their inspirations to create insights yes. as a basis of really great marketing campaigns. Yeah, and there are two other, two other bits that I talk about a lot in the book and elsewhere. One is this whole thing about playfulness. Again, I just think that business, because it's business, has decided it has to be serious. 
Um, and again, you know, some quarters more than others. And I think generally the ad industry and other parts of that world and some brands like, you know, Pixar and Google are very good at allowing people to take time off and play and, and, you know, because we know that, you know, playfulness is at the heart of creativity. So that's something I do talk about a lot um, with companies that I work with, which is give, give your people permission to play because that is the way that the brain also comes up with new ideas. Um, and the second thing is, and it's just a, it's always been a fascination obsession of mine, is, is comedy and humour. Um, and there's a whole section in, in in the second book, I think, actually, and the storytelling book, about the importance of, of humour. Because for me, another um, metaphor for insight is a punchline. You know, the way that an insight feels is the way a, a punchline mm. feels. What's that line so, from aha to ha-ha? I think you've got some reference. Exactly, aha to ha-ha. Yeah, and it, it's a very similar, and the, you know, so if I say, you know, there are two fish in a tank, and one says to the other, how do you drive this thing? <laughs> you know, your brain goes, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting that, I was expecting, and that's that's again for me. So there's a, I think there's a, a, a section on humour and comedy and, and punning. Um, because puns are, as someone said, you know, they, they, it's it's language on vacation, and I, I think that's again this whole thing about language. We get stifled by the language used that we use, the jargon. So anything that is that is playful, anything that is playing with words and language, for me, is more likely to give you a new a new insight, which makes perfect sense to me. Taz, if people want to pick up the conversation with you, want to have a chat, want to find out about creating their own book club or cinema club or just empowering their business to be more insightful, how should they get in touch? Yeah, my um, my, my website is still uh, in a work in progress. <laughs> okay. It has been for a while. Um, I'm on uh, LinkedIn, Taz Tazgul, uh, on there. Uh, Twitter, I live in a place in North London called Muswell Hill, so my Twitter handle is Taswell Hill, T-A-S. Ah, okay, Taswell Hill. Taswell Hill, there you go. Um, and I think if you just sort of Google me, there's stuff about And obviously both books are on uh, Amazon, the storytelling book and the Inspiratorium. Um, and I think they're still in various uh, bookshops like Foils and the Tate Modern, so you can purchase them there. Um, and, yeah, I'm generally open for conversations. Excellent. Good. Well, it has been a really interesting, a really insightful look at insight, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think it's been interesting. There's a lot in there. Uh, I think one of the main things for me is kind of diversity there in, in the way in which we're thinking, the way in which we're allowing our people to think, the way in which we are, I guess, broadening our horizons is key for creating more interesting, impactful communication. So, yeah. so that's great. I'm really, I am definitely going to finish the book because what I've read so far has been excellent. Um, so thank you for that. And thanks so much for joining on the podcast. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it too. Um, and maybe we'll get you back sometime. Pleasure. Thanks, Andy.